Hello, and welcome to Right Care Baptist. I'm your host, Dr. Jake Lancaster, here with my co-host, Amanda Comer. And today we are interviewing Ashley Harris, the Associate CMO at Baptist Memphis. Ashley, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, uh, thanks for, for having me today. Uh, actually, my clinical background is in, in geriatrics. I grew up in a, in a small town in Mississippi. Uh, always intended to become a small town physician. In the process of medical training, fell in love with the clinical care of uh, older patients, completed a, a geriatrics fellowship, and uh, returned back to Mississippi. Then uh, had the opportunity to join Baptist as uh, chief medical officer at Golden Triangle in Columbus. There, where I really uh, and, I, and I chose this path because, really, particularly when it comes to the care of elderly patients, our hospitals can be such a such a dangerous place. So I really felt like uh, in this particular role, I could really influence and change care to uh, significantly benefit uh, a large number of uh, patients. Uh, I was given the opportunity recently to uh, transition to Memphis. Uh, where I work with uh, Dr. Cloud uh, as the uh, new Associate Chief Medical Officer and still kind of uh, getting my feet wet here with a much larger medical staff, much larger uh, hospital. Thank you so much. I have to give a shout out to Columbus, Mississippi. That is where my parents are from and that's where my grandparents and, and all my cousins and aunts and uncles live. And I'm sure you probably took care of some of my family members. And so I really appreciate that. Absolutely. We have great representation from Mississippi today. So I'm in the northeastern part in Corinth, Mississippi. So there you go. All Mississippi folks. We're, we're making Mississippi proud today, aren't we? That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Dr. Harris, can you describe the current situation at Memphis? I know we've seen waves throughout this pandemic. So, what is the current capacity, the case counts, and the trends you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely, and you're correct. And so, again, fairly new to the to the Memphis market, but uh, definitely, I think you know, after a significant period of fair stability, we are beginning to see, as we are in a lot of other regions in the country, a trend uh, up in our actual volume. You know, currently, we've seen over the last week, you know, a gradual increase in our COVID positive patients, both on our med surge floors. Uh, and in our ICU. Uh, fortunately, we have been able to, to flex our resources to manage that volume, all while taking care of our uh, traditional non-COVID non patients. I think, uh, you know, right now in-house, about a third of our patients that we have uh, with COVID are in the ICU, with about half of those patients actually requiring ventilation. Uh, that ratio is fairly stable, but again, an overall gradual, a gradual increase. And I think that matches, and, and I know, Jake, you can comment on this, but I think that matches kind of an overall gradual trend in positive tests in the region. Oh, for sure. One thing I, I definitely want to comment on is that before you left Columbus, I think they were having a little bit of a surge and now Memphis is having a little bit of a surge. You know, there's one pattern I see. I, I think you're probably mostly responsible for the increase in cases in the metro area. <laughs> you, you suspect they might be following me around. Huh? Uh -huh. Yeah, you're, a, you're absolutely right. And I think it's been interesting. Certainly, it's been a learning experience for me following this throughout. And of course, your communication has been extremely helpful, but to understand the epidemiology of, of uh, a disease process like this and how uh, mitigation strategies work or don't work and uh, the, the sociology aspect of that. So certainly, I think, you know, it will be interesting to see 
you know, what the coming weeks hold. Right now, I am, you know, very glad to say that we've been able to handle that increasing volume uh, very successfully here, not without significant effort and some challenges, but we're meeting that challenge so far. Yeah, I think that it's really interesting that so far all the predictions about what the virus is going to do and where based on, you know, different events that have occurred haven't really panned out well or has not really coincided with any of those models that were out there. You know, we all thought maybe we'd get a break during the summer, but no, we're getting the highest number of cases throughout the South, which, as we all know, is really hot and humid. Uh, so what this virus does, nobody really knows right now. Exactly. And, you know, it'd be great to know in about five years when somebody writes the book about this time period. But, uh, exactly. Exactly. I do think we are able to understand some common messages. And that's that, I, you know, I do think that what we what we saw was that a lot of mitigation strategies work, social distancing and and PPE work when used used effectively, and we've certainly seen that amongst our providers in the hospital uh, who have managed to stay well uh, despite taking care of a you know a large number of COVID patients over the last few months. So we've learned, I think, and we've been able to prove some assumptions we had earlier in this process. You know, we're able to back that up with with proof now. But you're correct. A lot of the the models that we follow, and you know, it's it's been it's been hard to find a source of truth for what to expect. Can you give us a little bit of your experience about you know, what the response was from Golden Triangle versus Memphis? How are they similar? How are they different? Uh, what's sure. your take on that? Absolutely. So, looking back, time at GTR comparatively here, you know, certainly the commonality that I see is really the teamwork and the sense of kind of rising to the challenge. I see that equally here and there. Also, you know, while in, you know, a hospital such as GTR, because of resources, of, you know, fewer cases can have just as much disruption and cause just as many challenges as more cases here. Uh, certainly in Memphis, what I've been exposed to uh, are the ability to care for really critically ill patients requiring ECMO and other advanced, you know, services that I had not been previously exposed to. Also, there's a, you know, because of the population in this area, certainly, uh, you know, a concerted effort around testing for the community and uh, community outreach and things of that nature, just because the need is even so much greater. The common theme is that, you know, our health care workforce has really come together to work as a team in the last few months. I've seen that in ways that I've never seen before and uh, something I'm really proud of in, in both hospitals. Yes, the system effort really has been impressive and how we all learn from each other and the different entities. Um, I, I do have a question about initiatives that your team is working on to help with this response. One measure that we look at is length of stay for our COVID patient. Mm -hmm. Have you seen an increase or a decrease in the length of stay in ICU days? Yeah, absolutely. And you are correct because one of the one of the challenges we're seeing is that when we admit a patient with COVID, they tend to stay in the hospital a long time until they recover enough uh, to return home. 
So yes, we actually do have several strategies and actually working on something we're kind of calling an alternative COVID care system currently. And that's the idea that we're admitting patients to the hospital with COVID and keeping them until they're largely completely recovered because there's concern about the social support or access to resources they need when they return home. So we've really been able to partner, particularly uh, around the patients that require supplemental oxygen at the time of discharge. These are often patients who have never been on uh, oxygen before, their ability to access that resource and safely continue on oxygen at home so we're partnering with our pulmonary critical care docs, their advanced practice providers, our DME partners, our home health partners to develop a system where those patients can leave the hospital earlier on oxygen that can be weaned at home with set touch points using telemedicine to make sure those uh, patients continue that recovery curve at home instead of staying in the hospital those extra three or four days. Uh, and I expect uh, we're actually in the early phases of that pilot project, but recognizing that uh, we will continue to care for COVID patients in the coming months, I think that there will be an increasing role for kind of outside the box uh, thinking around that in the future. Also, of course, like every other hospital, we have a pretty robust strategy around our ability to create new capacity around critical care beds. Also, um, you know, we have a tremendous number of negative pressure rooms uh, in our facility, and we've been able to even grow that more uh, as demand has required it in the last few weeks. And then again, I've already alluded to um, kind of our testing strategy, but we basically have a drive-through testing van for the community that's, you know, seeing in excess of three or 400 patients a day that we're screening for uh, for COVID-19. So kind of, a, a, you know, an all-around approach. And then that's not to even to mention our strategies out in our primary care clinics and specialty clinics around this as well. You know, I'm really interested in that part, kind of that hospital at home model. Are y'all just planning on taking patients that have been in the hospital a long time, they're still in oxygen and sending them home? Or are you looking to target maybe your milder cases coming through the ED that are on the border? Absolutely, Jake. So I think the hope is that, you know, kind of our our clinical leaders have suggested, you know, if a patient comes into the ED and they have a new oxygen requirement, you know, we're going to put them in, in the hospital and work on getting them out sooner. But there are a, there is certainly a subset of, of patients that come to the ED and we admit them. They don't necessarily have an O2 requirement, but we're concerned about them and their possibility that they may deteriorate over the next few days that we, we put them in for basically observation. And right. we do feel like there's a role for this exact model. It's really that, that reassurance to our ED providers, our folks on the front line, that if you send this patient home, we can provide the resources to ensure that should they should they experience a further decline or have a, a need, you know, we can be there to address that. And so absolutely. And then, you know, ultimately, clearly this is a model that extends beyond to COVID into the future. And I think I saw, actually, I think Mayo Clinic is releasing a, a kind of a, a proposal or a study, basically that hospital at home model. And uh, I think it's something that we need to do for, for a variety of different reasons. And COVID has just accelerated that need. No, for sure. Yeah, I saw the Mayo release report this morning. They're partnering with some nationwide company in order to do it. And then I know Johns Hopkins has been doing the hospital exactly. for quite a few years and has exactly. some results on it. 
In a previous podcast, Dr. Lancaster mentioned the AI sepsis tool, and you guys have implemented that at mm-hmm. PTR. And so has this played a role in the COVID crisis? You know, that's something we certainly piloted at GTR. It was successful. Our physician, the nursing staff, did a wonderful job of kind of adopting that new technology. The plan, of course, is over time to roll that out through the system. I think for me personally, was such a, a learning opportunity because, you know, you hear the term AI and it's a term that's frequently used. But when you get to see it in real life and try to understand it a little more, and certainly Jake, you know, played a role in helping me understand the, the things that go on behind the scenes with that. You know, it was, a, it was a great experience, and I look forward to being part of bringing that, that technology, that tool to Memphis. I do think that, you know, while perhaps COVID itself didn't necessarily play a role in that, I mean, I think it, it opens the door for the role of AI in a variety of scenarios in the future. So I think that, you know, how we get the message in front of our physicians that, you know, our artificial intelligence doesn't replace, doesn't replace clinical judgment. It's a tool, just like uh, many of the other tools that we use um, when we take care of patients. And uh, I think when viewed through that lens, you know, I think AI can be applied to so many different scenarios. So, yeah, I mean, indirectly, I think it absolutely has a role. Thank you for that. You know, we have implemented some other things that may be a little less flashy than the AI sepsis tool, but we're working currently to roll out a module for the ICU, especially our EICU folks. And as part of that, we've implemented a couple of different things like the ICU mortality and readmissions risk and the SOFA score, which are all based on Epic's AI models. So those are there, but you know, not, not necessarily what you think about when you think about AI. Since you mentioned that you're trained as a geriatrician, I wanted to get your take on this disease and how it affects that population. As we all know, the mortality rate for COVID, if you're over the age of 80, is extremely high. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, that's been one of the devastating things about um, uh, this disease and the challenges of it, because what can be, you know, so mild or even asymptomatic uh, in one person can be lethal uh, in another. And so certainly, you know, I can speak personally and professionally from that, the impact this has had on my grandparents, my grandmothers, who are essentially in a large sense homebound now uh, out of that concern for this virus. Uh, and then I also think to our long-term care communities, our at-risk uh, populations of older, older patients uh, and the impact. The challenge is the impact goes far beyond just the raw numbers of uh, Uh, infection rates and mortality, which is significant, but it's the impact on quality of life. And and I think about even in our own hospital, you know, typically when we admit older patients, we try to be very aggressive with physical therapy and and the challenges around COVID-19. There are a lot of challenges around doing that. And so we see patients becoming, and and older patients at home, becoming very debilitated very quickly, even older patients that were previously independent. And then there is the challenge of the patients that need rehabilitation in a skilled nursing facility, and there are challenges there with bed capacity, and many facilities do not admit uh, COVID-positive patients for 
for obvious reasons. So the variety of challenges and concerns in our older patients, uh, you know, how we respond to that as a society, I think we'll be telling in the next few months because, again, that older population will continue to be hit disproportionately by this. So we really have to, to think about, obviously, our overall response, but how do we protect those most vulnerable individuals and also continue to think about their, the other aspects of their lives and uh, so, yeah, it's something I'm passionate about. I wish I had good answers because I really don't. But uh, I do know that I always try to think beyond the numbers when we look at mortality and infection rates and, and think about the impact on people's lives. And uh, I think that's particularly true in our older population. Well, uh, you know, one of the things I've been reading about recently is just the social isolation and that impact on that age group and demographic, uh, especially with those that suffer from memory problems and how that's affected uh, them? There is no doubt. So my initial practice in, in geriatrics was a cognitive clinic or a memory clinic. And of course, what I preached every day to those patients, uh, even, you know, even in the moderate stages of dementia was social interaction, being around people, communicating with people, uh, talking to people, being involved um, in, in whatever way, be it church, a social group, uh, whatever it takes, a book club. And so we've, we've basically taken that away for good reason uh, in many cases. And so, yes, uh, the impact will be significant from a, from a cognitive standpoint, but also, uh, you know, a mental health standpoint. Depression is a common uh, affliction in the elderly, and this uh, social isolation is probably one of the biggest contributors to that. So I have significant concerns about what this means for our uh, older population in the next six months to a year. You know, you talked about social isolation and our patients, but I also see depression and the impact it has on our staff, our physicians and APs, oh. and burnout and resilience. And do you see that continuing to be an impact, or do you see a solution for that? Absolutely, uh, yes. I, I know that. You know, I see it uh, when I talk to our providers. First of all, again, I go back to our first question: the teamwork and willingness to rise to the challenge challenges um, to me is remarkable. I've not had one person complain, but I do know that our, our docs and our nurses, our APPs are, are tired. They're tired for a variety of reasons. There's the actual clinical burden and the work associated with taking care of a lot of very sick patients, but there's also the fact we're on the front lines here, they're on the front lines, and then they go home and there's all the consequences of this pandemic that affect their personal lives, whatever that may be. So I think there's just a general sense of fatigue. You know, burnout is an issue at baseline in medicine, and uh, I, I, would, I do not think that this has certainly done anything to help that. And, you know, the answers to burnout are complex. I think I always think about that uh, emotional, that emotional uh, bank account. Uh, every day you come to work and you have to make withdrawals from that uh, to get through your day. And you have to have a way to make deposits or you'll get overdrawn. So, you know, doctors, even though we're busy, we have to be intentional about making sure 
they get time off, even if they don't feel like they need it. Sometimes maybe we need to make them. Um, and, you know, outreach, communication, which I think our organization does really good at communicating. I feel like our physicians are well informed about things that are going on. I think we have to be very, in every health system, has to be very intentional about uh, strategies to deal with burnout and fatigue, particularly in this setting. I definitely agree. Everybody, providers, physicians, family members, the public, everybody seems to be burned out and, and over this. And I think we're seeing some of the consequences in, in our region right now due to yeah. people just being tired of it. And certainly I worry about our, our medical staff and, and how they're dealing with it. I know people are obviously getting tired of, of doing the exact same thing and hearing the exact same messages for the, for the last three months. They want to go back to the clinical topics that interest them more, for sure. And I do. I I agree with you, Jake. I mean, I think not necessarily probably amongst healthcare providers because they understand, but I think in with a lot of, of, of people, they are. They're, they're tired and ready to move on. And I think there's kind of a feeling that if we, if we kind of pretend like it's not real, maybe it'll go away. And uh, I think, you know, I think certainly most people acknowledge that that's not the case. And yeah. we still have to continue to act like this is the imminent, you know, threat that it is. Right. It's definitely been a marathon. That's right. I do have one question and it kind of goes to what you were talking about earlier in the talk about coming from Golden Triangle to Memphis. I wanted to know what role telemedicine played in making you feel like you had more specialty support during that time period. Did you notice any difference? Did y'all use it in that regard for getting more specialist input? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, we already have a, we had a pretty good model there of involving specialists, particularly infectious disease, using a telemedicine model at GTR, and that was certainly enhanced by, by COVID. There was a sense that you know, we could we could handle this, even though it was a relative unknown. Uh, we were able to take care of of a lot of COVID patients there uh, because we knew that kind of in the background we had backup where we needed it. Uh, and that's always, you know, when you're in a when when you're in a regional hospital that takes care of very sick people. I mean, you know, Golden Triangle has a. It takes care of a lot of uh, very sick patients. It is always a comfort to know that you know we've got we have resources available to us if we need them. And so, yeah, absolutely, I would say the the telemedicine role increased, uh, and obviously, then even within the entity, you know, the role of a lot of the system initiatives around limiting that the time in the room for the staff around that even you know telemedicine within the entity. Uh, was a significant change, an evolution, and I think will, in the long term, open uh, doors for a lot of different ways of of thinking about that kind of work. I agree. Amanda, do you have any closing comments or any last topics you want to talk about? So I do have one closing comment. Dr. Lancaster has this strategy. He welcomes you as a guest on the show, and then he will ask you to be the co-host. So be prepared. (laughs) Okay, okay. I could handle that maybe. It's my secret plan is just to give over the hosting responsibilities uh, to somebody else so that I don't I have to hear my voice nice, anymore. Nice strategy. That's a good strategy. 
Yeah, I would definitely welcome you back on anytime. I would love yeah. to talk more about uh, your experience as a geriatrician, as yeah. well as just the fact that Ole Miss football is much better than Mississippi State. Oh, man. Ooh, you're the host, so I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> uh, Dr. Harris, we look forward to seeing the impact that you make at Memphis. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm happy to be here. It's been a it's been a great experience. I guess I'm what six or seven weeks in, and already I'm loving it. it it's fun. I like a good challenge. So, all right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Thank you for listening to Right Care Baptist. Remember that if you look in the show notes on the podcast app, you can find the link to CME credit. Have a good day.